This is the Ask a Death Doula podcast, a platform of free education on how to have the best end-of-life experience possible by knowing how to live your best life now. With experienced hospice, oncology, and wellness nurse, Suzanne B. O'Brien. Okay, good afternoon everyone and welcome to this edition of Ask a Death Doula. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. I am thrilled to have a guest today named Dr. Karen Wyatt. I've actually had the pleasure of being interviewed by Dr. Karen Wyatt three times over the last few years. So I'm going to tell you what she's been doing, some incredible work. She is a doctor. She's also the formal former medical director of a hospice. She is a speaker. She is an author of multiple books, and she also is the founder and creator of the End of Life University, which is like amazing. It's an online forum. She will explain it. I just went to the website again today, and there's just so many more things that are there. It's an incredible educational platform for so many diverse things, all to do with end of life. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to also let you know how you can access all that information. So thank you, Dr. Wyatt, for being here. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. It's just a pleasure to get to talk with you again. Yeah, it is amazing, the technology. It's, you know, it's wonderful what we can do. We kind of feel like we know each other. I haven't met you in person yet, but we will one day. But it is, it is the closest thing that we can get. So thank you for doing the video and scheduling that. Um, I want to start with the beginning of your journey into the medical profession. Um, most people know that I'm a registered nurse who's worked in hospice and oncology, which is cancer care. And I feel like coming from that space, and being able to share perspectives and what that looks like, because most people don't know anything about the support that's out there and what when we get sick, what that really means for not only the patient and the family. From hearing from your perspective, from being a doctor who's really, you know, at the top of the food chain, so to speak, within the medical system, um, what that was like. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is what drew you to medicine in general? Do you remember what that was? Yes, very much so. Even as a child, I had this sense that I came here to help people. I need to help people. And I wasn't sure what that would consist of. And um, my fourth grade teacher said, have you ever thought of being a doctor? I don't know why she suggested that to me, but immediately I knew like, that's what it is. That's what I'm supposed to do. So from a very young age, I just knew medicine is the place for me to be. And somehow I came here to help people and to help them heal. So that's what got me in the door in the first place. How beautiful. Fourth grade. I love that. And even being before that. So that's, that's perfect. So when you went into medicine, did you always know you'd work in end of life or how did that path take its I didn't know that at all. I didn't know anything about hospice care or end-of-life care when I started in medicine. And um, I gravitated toward family medicine because I had kind of a holistic sense of the patient, the whole patient. And to me, it made sense to take care of the entire family um, from birth to death. Uh, but I didn't understand at the time the death portion. And I got no training whatsoever in medical school 
um, about dying and death. And, and um, it wasn't until a few years after I started my own medical practice, I really, I found out about hospice because of my own grief experience. Mm-hmm. Um, when my father died by suicide, and I was just plunged into devastating grief and guilt and loss and lost all my confidence for medicine and got this idea just came into my head that I needed to call hospice. And I didn't know why. I wasn't even sure what hospice did, but it turns out it was the place I needed to be because that's where I was able to heal my grief. But that's also where I was meant to be because the moment I started volunteering there and seeing patients, I knew like this is this is the work I was meant for all along. And it was my dad's death that really brought me there. So yeah. that's when I felt like I really started my medical practice when I discovered hospice. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, sometimes the, um, the road that leads us there, you know, is full of a lot of pain and, and things that ultimately do become beautiful because if we had not had, you know, the opportunity to kind of look further, but that sounds really, really intense. What I do love about you and what you're saying is holistic, number one, because I don't think that we understand as society or even medical practitioners that we are holistic beings. And so we're just always focused on the physical. Um, and especially at end of life, it doesn't work that way. But I don't think any, any support or medicine works that way. So I feel like you have a very keen sense of your holistic person that you are because you keep saying that you're following your intuition you know <laughs> that it's saying something you don't even question it you sort of go there um what i love is that you said when you got to hospice to help with your grieving you knew that you were supposed to be there for being a doctor um which when and i just want to say when i first got to hospice and i kept getting nudged i remember the very first day that i was shadowing a nurse out on visits i said this is the exact place that I'm supposed to be in. Like it was like a puzzle piece, which is such a wonderful feeling, by the way, in life when you, yeah. It is when when all the dots are connected and you finally know, oh, something in me has been longing for this and wanting to feel like I'm in the right place, but I had not experienced that until that moment. Sure. So when you got, so then you went to hospice and you were a doctor and it felt great um, to be in that space. What happened then? Were you, were you a little bit surprised at some of the, again, the kind of lack of general end of life supporting conversation? And what did that look like for you? During the days I, the, the years that I worked in hospice, I was a little bit insulated, I think, from the rest of the world and how yeah. the world saw death yeah. and dying because I was in the hospice world sure. where everyone accepted death and was trying to make death beautiful. Yeah. And it was You're actually, amazing. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. After I left hospice because I, I had a book in me that I needed to write and that was my next in, intuitive hit is that I needed to go write a book and I got the message like it's, it's not about care for the one anymore longer I need to get a message out to a bigger audience and then I suddenly discovered out in the real world that nobody wanted to talk to me about (laughs) dying nobody cared that I wrote a book and so that was an eye-opener for me and I finally came face to face with just how taboo death was in our and still is in our society 
Yeah, for sure. But how was it with your patients coming on? Did you find that people were coming on hospice services very late in the process? Were families in denial? Were patients in denial? Um, how did that kind of look even inside? We did have, we had many patients who came on late, but our hospice did a lot of work in the community mm -hmm. um, with, we educated doctors in our small community, That's we were great. in a fairly small yeah. town. So we had, and we were the only hospice in the town. So we had this opportunity to get mm -hmm. familiar with doctors. And I knew a lot of them because I trained in medicine there. So yeah. um, we could educate doctors and get patients in sooner. But definitely we had our share of patients who came reluctantly and with a lot of fear and a big emphasis of our hospice was how do we help everyone be as comfortable as they can be whether it's emotionally spiritually physically right. um, during this experience yeah and um, I mean I think that's great I guess it really is a different scenario when you're in a small town that you have more of a community and trust because trust is such a big thing within this which unfortunately most areas don't have that kind of small environment so when you got your book done, which congratulations, the first one, by the way, um, which is a big feat and it's a wonderful thing. And then you really want to share that knowledge because you have so much knowledge that what can make it better, you know, the education and you, people were like, I don't want to hear about that. So, so what, what did you think then? I, well, that's when I started exploring. I, I suddenly realized, like, I have to do something to help put the book into the world. And, like, how do you get people, how do you even get an audience and even talk to people about this and get it out there? And at that time, I had heard about online telesummits where people would do interviews and post them online. And I thought, that's what that's what needs to happen around death and dying because I'd yeah. never heard any kind of telesummit about that subject and I thought what if I were to start interviewing people about death and dying and this was in 2013 yeah that I thought I wonder if I could find people who would talk to me and I just went through and googled like death and dying and trying to find anybody who does this work who works what what kind of work do they do and got the names of about a dozen people and they all agreed to be interviewed by me. So I just started um, flying by the seat of my pants in a way, not even knowing what I was doing and putting interviews out there. And gradually people started signing up and subscribing yes. to my page so that they could hear the interviews. Then I knew like, okay, I have to keep doing this because people yes. seem to like it. Yeah. And, um, my thought was, even if people who are afraid of death and dying, if, if they could hear, here are two people talking about death yeah. and they're so, and they're comfortable with it and they're yeah. talking about it in positive ways that right. that alone, just listening might help someone who is dealing with a lot of fear and resistance. Um, so that was my, just my initial thought. We're just going to have conversations about death. And, and what happened is I started learning about how many grassroots movements were going yes. on out there that I knew nothing about before. Um, death Cafe and um, the Conversation Project. I, I started learning myself and getting a real education by doing the interviews. Yeah, your interviews and the people that have been on your program, I mean, I've listened to many and I'm always learning and getting inspired. And I do this work, you know, within my doula nursing, but also what I love about your platform is that you have all these paths, 
with end of life, you know, and aging and, you know, and you go into the depths of it. So, you know, you can always learn from these experts that you have coming on, which is incredible in one place. So I think it's fantastic. And I love giving people the opportunity to listen to something that is very scary for people for the most part from the safety of their, their home. So they can, they can tune in. They don't have to say anything. They can just listen. And when you present it in that positive way, because I feel like the fear that has been developed around end of life has simply because we just don't see it. We don't know anything about it. And, you know, and we'll talk about this for a minute, our, our medical professionals who are the ones that we look to at the end to support us and to do, they're not given that training. So let's go back to that for a minute because I feel that there were a few avenues that led us to this really dysfunctional place about end of life that's happening right now. Now the good news is we're making a turn. You know, we're, it got all the way around, but we're getting on our way back, the death positive movement, and there's so many great things happening. We have a long way to go. And again, we are in the family of, yes, we talk about it and we're great. But most people, when you do go out the door and you say, hey, you know, I'm in a death dealer. And it's like, dude, they're like, forget it. You know, we don't need you. We don't even want to talk to you about that. Um, but it's, it's really complicated for our physicians. Um, and, I, and I have worked in oncology, cancer care, and hospice care. And oncology was really interesting. The reason that I went back to do that is because most hospice nurses, they would like you to have oncology experience and or long-term, understandably so. So I literally got into hospice, loved it, went back and did oncology, went back then to full-time hospice. So I could really see what support and what patients went through in their family so I could be a better support to them and understanding. And it was in that time at the medical center, working with a bunch of different people, different levels of intensity, that I would see doctors who would lose a patient to an end-of-life experience, um, that they would die, and patients who were in their 80s, 90s, and the doctor would literally be walking down the hallway with his or her head down like they had failed. Mm -hmm. And it broke my heart that we have set them up to believe that they need to keep fixing it, because that's sort of what we've done. And you can speak to this because I'm gonna hand that over to you for a minute. But from what I have been told and what I understand is that our training for doctors is if this goes wrong, you do this. If this, this, we're not looking at the whole person, number one, but we're also saying you have everything you need to do to fix this, extend the life, to keep it going. Let's not say to fix it, to keep it going. And when and if it comes to the point that that person dies, you have failed. And that's exactly what I was seeing, even with people who've lived full lives, cancer all over, that doctors still look like defeated. And it was just unbelievable to me because that's 100% failure then, because we're all going to get to end of life. So what have we done in our training and our messaging that we're sending to our... Well, I feel like around the turn of the 20th century, when we started making a lot of advances in medicine, scientific advances, antibiotics, anesthesia, surgical techniques, I think medicine fell in love with science because science was amazing. It gave us all sorts of gifts and there were things we could do. We, could, we actually could save people's lives. We learned how to, how, how to do surgery that could keep someone from dying of a ruptured appendix you know we it made a huge difference in people's lives but I think 
we fell in love with the possibilities from science and completely left out the reality of life, the cycle of life, and the fact yeah. that death is natural, and yes. death is the natural, a natural occurrence at the end of this physical life cycle that we're in. Yes. And somehow with so much emphasis because now the body of medical knowledge to be learned is so vast that yeah. every student has to learn in medical school and residency. There isn't room, very much room to talk about even behavioral medicine or, or the spiritual aspect of medicine. There's, mm. there's no place for that. They're, the students are so busy just learning the science, just trying to take on all of this knowledge. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, but I think we totally missed the mark here, is that, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, there's so much to learn, but there's so much to learn in this section. And I think that, like you said, we got super excited about the science behind it. And that is exciting in context, that there's quality of life, that that person wants what we're offering them, um, that it will give them an extended period of time that, again, is of a higher, of something acceptable to them, not just that they're kept breathing. So I think we got excited and we just didn't even make it part of the curriculum because we didn't want to even go there. And the second thing is, when the, and you're right, in the last 100 years, we've extended life from 46 to 80 now. So we don't see people age and at end of life anymore. It's like this big mystery. So mm -hmm. we didn't even, so again, I think that contributes to the lack of understanding that death is a natural part of the life cycle. And I was in a really great, robust death cafe on the Upper West Side of New York that I'm running. And we had a lot of people there. And I'll tell you, honestly, a lot of people walked in with a lot of pain with deaths that were not good that they saw they're they're scared they don't know what they can do to make sure they don't fall into that and they also need to heal so there's a lot of work to be done um but this one woman she said she goes she goes death isn't painful she said disease is painful and when you extend it and again this is a personal choice so we go back to the education um yeah it's 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 super important now the good news I spoke to a group of third year medical students at NYU who asked me to present the end, the end of life doula. And they're so excited because they know it's not going well and they wanna be part of the change. So again, there's lots of positive things happening, but that doesn't change the fact that it's really not a big part at all of the curriculum for our medicine. And what do we do with the doctors that are out there right now, You know, working crazy hours with tons of patients and not having any knowledge for end of life. Exactly, and so many doctors are experiencing burnout and compassion fatigue, and part of the yeah. problem is yeah. that they've cut out the aspect of medicine that would be the most gratifying for them, which is helping people find meaning in life, which you discover when you become aware that, that you're mortal and that life doesn't last forever. And suddenly you learn how to live in the moment and, yeah. and find beauty in life. And if doctors only knew that and they could engage with their patients at that level, it would change their entire practice. They'd yeah. feel so gratified by what they did and could let go of it. Oh, okay, the treatment didn't work, but that's okay because my patient has 
has discovered joy and beauty in their life, even though they their their life is going to be shortened. It's it's okay. sometimes sometimes Karen, I find that my patients have better six months at the end of life than they have in the last thirty years. Just for what you're saying, it's like they get present, families get present, forgiveness conversations are had. Um, the work is done and, and a doctor can be a huge part of that, a huge part of that support, especially in that, you know, that whole process. I think one of the first things for me, I feel like we have to let doctors off the hook of them thinking that it, they can't let somebody die. Like, I think that thinking needs to change for all of us. In fact, I was a, a couple of weeks ago, we had a physician call up from um, Miami who seemed like he was an older doctor in critical care. And he said, you need to help us. And I said, well, what, you know, what do you mean? He said, we just had a, a woman come in. She was 87 years old with cancer all over. And the family said, fix this. Mm. And he said, I can't. And they got angry and the whole thing was a mess. And so he said, please help us. We don't know anything about end of life. We don't know how to talk to you. And I say, can I say, it's not your, only your fault here. It's the fault, it's a couple of things. And it's the fault of us as individuals not doing our due diligence about finding our advanced directives, our choices and letting our families know that. Because then when it comes to a crisis situation, we would already know what, where we were more or less. It wouldn't be that shock of fix it because my mom's dying. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a case of all of the burden of responsibility being placed on the doctor's shoulders when it's a shared experience. It's a, it, it's a shared process that we're working yeah. through together. And so is actually healing and treating disease. It's a shared experience. Right. But I think doctors, they take the responsibility on and feel like they're carrying patients' lives in their hands. And it's their job to protect them and make sure nothing happens to their patients. And that's, that's an unwinnable situation. It's an unwinnable situation. So let's talk about language. Cause I, you know, I try and really look at what, where have we gotten to this place that's so full of fear and that we're not talking about it. But, and I, so I look at, I look at that we've put doctors uh, in a situation that's, you know, hundred uh, percent failure if they let somebody die. So that that's wrong. But I also think that, the language we use around a lot of this, and we're probably not even aware we're doing it, lost the battle. You know, I'm sorry there's no much, there's no much more that I can do for you, or I'm sorry I can't do any more for you. Um, these are really terrible phrases and things that we're saying. And so we're creating this fight. You've got to fight. Uh, just like what you said, the doctor can do so much so much with healing and support. And you know as well as I do that close symptom management can completely change somebody's experience all the way. So if you have a doctor who is even just, again, being with you, walking that journey as that support system, because I find that a lot of patients, and rightly so, they really count on their doctor and look to them for guidance, for strength. And if somebody just walks them down that journey with them. I'm, I'm going to be here with you. That can change everything for them. We're not supposed to fix it. You know, it's a natural, but I'm supposed to be here for you. 
exactly yeah. yeah exactly so many times when i've talked to doctors about why don't you refer patients to hospice sooner in the course of their illness they say to me because i don't want to take away the patient's hope hope is the only thing they have and and i try to explain to them hope doesn't just come from some other treatment that you're going to offer them. Hope yeah. comes from what people really want is meaning in their life and they want love and they want to be with their family and they want to know they can spend quality time with them. And if you, you can give them hope in everything else that hospice offers, you don't have to place your hope only on treatment that's attempting to get a, a cure for the illness. You can, you can provide hope in so many other ways for patients. I mean, I love that you said that because we hear that too. And it's, and I often think you have a terminal patient because now we're talking about terminal and I say, hope of what, you know, we don't want them to lose hope, hope of what, when you're not honest, you deny somebody the opportunity to sometimes get to the things that they haven't wanted to address <coughs> conversations, um, putting things in order, so to speak. Um, there's a ton of different things, you know, it's just, and if we, again, we look at doctors for the trust and belief, and if somebody says, we're going to try this, you know, this is going, I might not be aware that I'm so close to the end, and then I might die anyway, which we've seen happen. So I think we have to be really careful. Again, I think if we started back with that death is a natural part of the process, that there's so much we can do as medical professionals to help patients and also that doctors are not responsible to keep people alive at all costs forever. That's just not possible. So a couple of things, but then, you know, we're going to talk about the education piece and I'm going to really let you take over and talk about end of life university. Cause I think it birthed into something so much bigger than you thought. And education for me, again, we have doctors calling up for education. We have families calling for education. It's the answer. Because not, there's not one size that fits all with end of life. You know, what I would choose for my end of life and what I would want might be different than what somebody else would want. Um, but we all have the ability to choose what we would want. You know, I want to be here. I want to be, I want to have this to eat or, you know, this loved one or my animal. Um, and so we need to empower people with the understanding that they can make those choices, that they don't have to go down what I call the, the default. Because if you don't choose for yourself, it's going to be chosen for you. And usually that doesn't look very good. What, what happens when we go into nursing homes and we go into hospitals and we have tubes in us and we're kept alive. If we didn't want that, we have to be able to take ownership of that and also know what that means. So let's talk about the education components to end of life university. Well, as I said, you know, I started kind of just innocently and unknowingly doing interviews with people. And I really was doing them from the perspective of a novice because I knew about hospice. I really didn't know about anything else that was going on out there in this end of life movement. And so I could, I could interview someone about, home funerals yeah and i was a i was a beginner i knew nothing so i could ask all the questions that people yeah. out there were yeah. also what's a home funeral why would anyone want to do that and yeah. um, and i i came to see it was actually perfect i wasn't the expert i was the person who needed information so the interviews 
got to that level of what are the basics that we need to know. And I started to gradually see that that is what people really need. People are looking for this. And then I realized even people doing the work need this kind of information yes. because there are people leading death cafes who don't know anything about green burial or home funerals. You know, there are people doing different aspects of the work and we all need to understand the whole spectrum of what's going on yeah. at different stages of, yeah. of the end of life. So uh, I got more and more empowered to just keep inviting in everyone I could find who was doing something different in some other arena and just asking all the questions I had of those people. So that interview series really took off and took a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I've converted it into a podcast now so that it's on weekly. It was just twice a month and now I have a weekly podcast because there's just so much material to cover that I needed to do more. Um, I, I, have, I have a really broad audience of people from lay people who don't know anything to I have hospice doctors and chaplains and social workers listening, um, people who really are experts themselves in the field, but who, and, and like you, um, who are just curious and want to, want to learn more and hear from other people and hear and get some inspiration from what someone else is doing and what worked for them. Sure. Uh, so that interview series really took on a life of its own that I had no idea would happen. I thought yeah. I would do maybe 20 interviews and that would be it and I'd stop, but now I can't stop. <laughs> yeah. No, it's amazing. So um, for me as well, just what you're saying, you know, end of life is not just coming in and supporting somebody at that last time. You know, it really, everyone says, okay, well, what makes a good end of life? a good life. And of course, that's a very big, broad statement. But for us, and, and I know that you have all those different facets, I love to share the wisdom of the amazing people at End of Life, what they look back and say what they feel the life's journey was about. It's a, like an organic thing that they do, that perspective. But really taking people, End of Life is not just that last piece. It's, it's life, but then it's, it's also that terminal diagnosis and maybe even aging now. You know, I think that there's a whole population of our elderly that, again, are not being supported um, the way that we really should as a society just because we've just kind of like outsourced our elderly. Mm-hmm. And so, and from a holistic standpoint as well, because I'll pass many elderly, I'm in New York city. So I'm able to, uh, you know, see and get to, to see some elderly and they're very quiet. A lot of them, because you know what, that's, that's just the way that society treats them. And so they don't really look, they don't, they don't, they don't engage because they say, Oh, people just walk past us. They don't want to know. Mm-hmm. They don't really, we don't want to burden anyone. And I thought, Oh my goodness. And when you are able to start talking to somebody, there's a whole beautiful being there that, you know, the first time I, there was a, there's a woman, and I know I tell this story, but it, it's so important to me is that I've lived on this block for a year and a half. And I noticed this woman sitting on the first floor in a chair by a window most of the time. And she looks very, she looked very elderly to me. And cause I would walk my dog, you know, a couple times a day. And I would notice that no one was in there and I noticed a walker. And then finally, um, she, she kind of, we talked through the window and the, one of the first things she said to me is I'm very lonely. And oh. And so we've, we have become really good friends. She's absolutely lovely. She's 87 or 89, no family, you know, mm-hmm. was in there by herself. Um, 
I often think what would happen if she wasn't on the first floor, that she wasn't able to engage even in that way with people. Um, so there's a ton of people. So our elderly are out there. They, they need to be, you know, acknowledged and holistically acknowledged. So I think that we've kind of lost it from there. But then we have this huge population again that then will become end of life. And it's not only people that are older that are at end of life. We have all different types of people in all different situations. So it starts way before mm -hmm. the actual death. And I love that you have these experts because I've learned a lot from the and maybe we should clear up what a home funeral is because people are always like, what do you do? You bury, bury them in the backyard? No, <laughs> no it's not. But it, it's such a beautiful option. And every family that I've shared this option with and talked about usually chooses it. They just didn't know they could choose that. So I love that you talk about bereavement and all different things on, I mean, you have, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about your offerings on End of Life University, but today um, when I was on there, I saw the suicide kind of um, whole little section, which is amazing because that's very specific. And then there was an expert that's talking about death and children. And I talk about that a lot. I talk a lot about do not hide this from children it needs to be age appropriate but what we're seeing now part of the huge dysfunction is you know the children that were quote unquote protected by telling people that grandma's sleeping or you know they just disappeared we're seeing that dysfunctional relationship with death now as they're adults i mean that's very much what's happening yes so so all, yeah so tell us about what people can see on your end of life university, what they can access. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, opportunity for teaching. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, there's the, the interview series, which is now being called the podcast. So they can okay. link to my podcast there, which is every Monday. And I post interviews, but also just some solo episodes where I talk about things that, that, uh, that I think are important to bring up. Um, this year in 2018, I started an online reading group. I decided, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun to have kind of an online book club and we yeah. would read books every month about the end of life. Mm -hmm. And I posted it online and I thought if 20 people sign up, I will, I'll do it. I'll go ahead. If I can get 20 people who want to read books about death, dying in the afterlife and almost a thousand people signed up. And what? so from all wow. over the world, yes. yeah. from all That's over great. the world, it was shocking. So I have that and I'm going to do it again for 2019. And yeah. you can just sign up and get an email of which, what book we're reading each month of the year. And you can join a thousand people who are reading the same book. And so Wonderful. I've had a lot of positive feedback from people who said, wow, like reading these books has really opened my mind and I'm learning from the books. So it's another, another pathway for yeah. people to learn things. And then this year also, I really decided to focus in on education, as you and I were saying, because um, our whole, every facet of our society needs education. Mm -hmm. about death and dying issues, including the medical system, including clergy, even funeral directors need education, our first responders, our, All of us. You know, every, everyone needs it. Yeah. And so I decided that one of the things I could possibly do to help, I've been meeting a lot of people who said, I would love to teach a class. I'm a hospice volunteer, or I used to work in this area, and I'd love to teach people what I know, but I have no idea how to even do that. 
So I created a little course for people who want to teach about death and dying, just to talk about the basics of uh, how do you how do you put together a plan for your class, a curriculum, and yeah. how do you find a place to hold the class? Yeah, and um, just the kind of the nuts and bolts of creating a class about death and dying. And because what, what I really want to do is empower people to teach these classes that they. Yeah thought of they have the ideas they already know what they'd like to teach they just are don't quite have the confidence yet to get out there and teach so I thought if I could empower people and make them feel like oh I've had some training now I know how to do this and yeah yeah um, and in my opinion we don't need more people with um, advanced expertise, like we don't need more people with more academic education about death and dying. We actually need neighbors to talk to neighbors. We need everyone in their own community, in their own neighborhood to say, uh, this is what happened when my Aunt Mary died. This is what it was like for me. And so I want to empower everyone to view themselves as a teacher. I could be a teacher. I can tell someone what I learned. I can tell someone what, what I know and share that to make life better for other people. Yeah, that's beautiful because, you know, we are, this is a human experience, um, dying and living and getting back to connecting us with community, but also really emphasizing because We'll talk a little bit about what's happening now in the support for end of life and what the movement is doing um, because it kind of, it, that's a good segue into that. But this, you know, end of life is a human experience with compassion and holistic and everyone is a, has a place in that. Every person in everywhere in the world. So what would you think right now within our end of life system um, which hospice and hospice is a beautiful model of care, but remember that we have to again we have a lot of restrictions for reimbursement that are on us, and um, what would you say are our biggest challenges in mainstream medical right now, and then what do you see happening that could maybe fill that spot? Well, um, one place I, I got some ideas about this, I went back and read a book about the natural childbirth movement that took place back in the 60s and 70s, because I think there are a lot of parallels between birth and the birth movement and the natural dying movement. And I wanted to learn, like, how did that actually take place? And what ended up happening is that we, we transformed the healthcare system so that hospitals began offering birthing rooms where women could have natural childbirth in a hospital with a midwife um, and have access to emergency care if needed, but go do without it if it wasn't needed. And initially hospitals were very reluctant to offer that and there were freestanding birthing centers that were cropping up everywhere and kind of market forces pushed hospitals to get more and more accepting of natural birth and i think we need a solution i don't think home hospice is going to work for every family not every family can do it and many people so many people die in hospitals and some and many times that's the only place they can be because the complexity of care that they need. We need our hospitals to become, to, to create, if I can say it, like dying, dying centers in a way, or to have rooms that can accommodate a patient who's dying and staff that's trained who understands how to support a family and a patient who's dying 
within yeah. the hospital, and we need the medical system to evolve that way um, so that we're not trying to move death out of hospitals, but we're trying to make the hospitals more death-friendly so that when it does happen there, everyone's trained and everyone knows what to do and how to support the family, how to provide the most compassionate, loving care for the patient. I think that's just one aspect of it within medicine that we need. That's going to take a lot of training and a lot of convincing of um, hospital systems, but it happened in the natural birth movement because prior yeah. to that, birth, childbirth was completely medicalized and pathologized and women were over-medicated and anesthetized during childbirth and partners weren't allowed in the room and, and that completely transformed. And I believe it can happen with the dying process as well in the hospital. Really, it's interesting. I haven't really heard the hospital aspect. I've heard nursing homes, obviously, where many people are. If there's a way that we could bring in exactly what you're saying, a beautiful, warm, supported, end-of-life care within the nursing home system, but the same, we should have the same in a wing of the hospital. It's good. The change is going to happen because we have the staggering numbers and our mm -hmm. medical system cannot handle it. And it's also right now failing, unfortunately, in that area for the amount of care that we can support, even at home hospice, which is so wonderful. Home hospice, we expect the hospice nurse to teach the loved ones how to do that care. But most people are absolutely petrified. They don't know the first thing about end of life. Um, the hospice nurse is only there sometimes an hour at a time. You know, the, it just has so many gaps to it. And yeah. so that, that leads us to that holistic, just like the birthing doula, that leads us to talk a bit about the end of life doula, death doula movement that is really in full swing. Yes, and which is absolutely going to transform everything, I believe, because I can imagine um, death doulas being brought into nursing homes and hospitals yes, yes. to help provide that level of care if for in those cases when a patient cannot be cared for at home. Yeah. I think the death doula movement is really going to push all of this forward. I mean, if it's yeah. happening already. It is, and um, it's so exciting to see, and I think you're exactly right, that that doula will be the special person that's non-medical. Remember, it's not a medical. You don't need degrees. You need to have a human interest of compassion and care and want to be of service to people, and then you can do this work. Um, and it's incredible, the people stepping forward. And the beautiful thing is that they have no time restrictions on them. So when we work, because death doesn't work, you know, where it's like, oh, it's five o'clock on Friday, you know, I'll see you on Monday. It just, there's just so much that's different on it. Um, that it allows the doula the freedom to do it. And I think we'll, we'll be in all those areas. And this past year, because of the national initiatives that really have taken off with the NHPCO End of Life Doula Council, mm -hmm. uh, which is like absolutely incredible. And then also they have the National End of Life Dual Alliance, NIDA. So there's these two, I mean, it's moving in light years and it will happen and is happening in a great, positive, loving way that's going to make change. So I, I love the fact that we have to have the doula be open to working in all places and have all places be willing to accept those doulas. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. 
as I was reading about the natural childbirth movement, it was really clear that a perfect storm happened, which is really what caused this transformation. And I think we're building on that perfect storm, that there has to be a will within the medical system itself to recognize this is broken, it's not going well. And there are now more and more doctors are standing up and speaking out and saying something needs to change within the system, which is perfect. Yes. And then we have to have the public, the consumers with enough education to say, I want this to change too, to apply pressure from outside. And we have to have the providers of the care, the death doulas available who've been trained and are ready to step in, who can provide the care as we, as the demand for it increases. So you can see it all coming together, really. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, all these elements of the perfect storm are happening. Yep. So, um, you know, it's like, I love what you said is, is all different aspects. We, and education is the key to all of it. Mm -hmm. So our doctors have to say, okay, this isn't working and we need to do better. Um, and plus they're not happy, you know, they're not getting the satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty awful. And then as consumers, which the, your voice, you are actually the one with the power. It's like everyone thinks that there's, you know, everyone making the rule, but if you're, it's your dollar, you have a lot of power in that. And you should also just obviously know your choices of what you would want, but you need to speak up. So if all these people, all of us had our information and did our advanced directives ahead of time and got to that place where it was a decision between this and that and said, oh, we've already, I've already thought about this. My family all knows that I choose that I just want to go home then kind of case closed, right? And then maybe you even already know the doula that's in your area. So I agree that all these different areas, and it, and it is happening, but the education platform is obviously the key. And there's no judgment here. We're moving forward together. And I think that's what's beautiful is that, you know, all of us are moving forward, holding hands kind of together to make positive change because it's time. And that's one of the key factors, I believe, also is that collaboration between all of us who care about making the end of life experience better, but who have different passions. You know, we've yeah. been called to do different things yeah. yes. in this movement, but we all need to collaborate, which is part of you and I talking together and mm -hmm. you doing a webinar for my audience. Yeah. Um, this is the kind of, this is what we need. Yeah. We need to put our heads together and collaborate and figure out how can I work with you so that together we're so much stronger than if we're each just in our own little silo trying to create change? Absolutely. And I think it brings back again, a sense of a global community and this really thing that we've kind of lost today in, in today's day and age. So it's really lovely on a couple of levels to do it together and to join. So we are doing that. And I thank you for being part of doing that today with me. So um, if people would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way? And we'll all also post your information and links to your website. But if you just want to share. Sure. They, they could start by going to eoluniversity.com. Um, that's the best website to check out. EOL for end of life, eoluniversity.com. And there is a, a page uh, they can click on a link there uh, for the, uh, to receive teaching guidelines. If, if they're interested in teaching a death and dying class and they sign up to receive the free guidelines, they'll be on my mailing list and I'll inform them when I have a class coming up on being a death and dying class teacher. Um, they can also, they can sign up for the reading group if they're interested in that and they can get the link to listen to podcasts there too. 
Wonderful. Yeah. And I encourage everyone to do that. It's absolutely amazing. So before we end, I'd like to just ask you, is there anything that stands out? And I know you've had such incredible interviews with so many different people, but I know sometimes for me, when I'm sharing, there's a, there's a pearl of information that has struck somebody that really changes their direction. Have you learned anything or been just like you, you know, something you've heard in one of your interviews that really has shaped or taken you on just a different like enlightenment or any kind of parting pearl or insight you'd like to share with, with the group today? Yeah, I think this would be an overall impression that has come to me over time as I've done all these interviews because I always, I begin each interview just as you did by asking each person to tell me their story. And I would say pretty much every single person I've ever interviewed about why they got involved in, end of, in the end of life movement in some way has a story of grief, death, tragedy, something in their lives that was a crisis in the moment that led them to this place where they are now, to the work with, that they're doing right now, just as you and I both talked about that. And the thought came to me one day is that death is calling us to this work. Death itself, mm -hmm. it's bringing us all together and it's yeah. calling us here to do the work. None of us are here by mistake. We all got here on a similar trajectory because it's where we're meant to be. And it's as if death itself is creating a new, a new path for us to take as a society and it's bringing us together to help make that happen. So that was the, that was the inspiration I got one day that uh, I, I love it. So, and death is our greatest teacher. Yes. About life. And some, and you know, unfortunately, like what my patients say, you know, it shows up at the end. So what we want to do is really get there before that. And when you said, when we're touched by death on a personal level, we can't ignore that. That changes us. And it changes yes. us down the road to, to do this work and to connect with people in a compassionate, beautiful way that we would have never got there. So you're right. So, so wow, that's really powerful. I love that. Yeah. So I feel like um, we're here, we're hard on this path with a certain amount of awe and yes. gratitude for even yes. being here and being able to do the work. And that's the message that when other, when I tell other people what, what kind of work I've been doing for most of my career in hospice with dying patients, they think, oh, how could you even stand to do that? And I think, that's been the greatest blessing of my entire life. What do you mean? Like, I, I'm so grateful that I've had this opportunity. And I think that is exactly what people need to hear. How much of a blessing it is to be around people in that space and learn from it and be connected. So Dr. Karen Wyatt, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Ask the Death Doula. It was absolutely wonderful. It's such an honor to be talking to you and you've done so much great work. So on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you. So thank you so much. And again, you can reach Dr. Karen Wyatt, End of Life University, E-O-L-U University. Um, she has just amazing offerings. I'll be joining some as well. So I hope to see everyone there. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ask a Death Doula. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a raving review. Subscribe, share, and send your questions. See you in the next episode.